Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business. You stopped waking us up early. Very early. I I Um, think I bought those alarm clocks when you started school mm -hmm. in kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs) If you remember, I said... Mm -hmm. You can lay in the bed if you want. I already have my education. Well, that that message, Craig, rings through my head every day. Every day. It's like, I better get up. My mother was a blind architect. My mother was too. Designing huge walls, no man Hello, everybody. I am Michelle Obama, and this is the Michelle Obama Podcast. On this episode, we're going to talk about the first and most foundational relationship in anybody's life. The relationship between a parent and child. My parents provided me and my brother with unconditional love and support. The ability to think independently and to learn and grow and fail on our own. Now, my mom is not someone who likes to do a lot of interviews. She does not like the public eye. So I asked my brother Craig to come back on the podcast and join us as well for this conversation Marion Robinson is with us today. Yeah, yeah, we're going to give you applause, Grandma. Thanks, because, guys. <laughs> be, because, look, I have to tell the world that getting you to do this, you know, is like a, a miracle. It's a miracle. like It's like baby, baby Jesus <laughs> from the resurrection. We saw it. She showed up. She came down from the mountaintop to speak with us today. But I thought, you know, since we are in a pandemic, that we'd start there. I mean, how you doing? How you feeling? How how, how does this time feel for you? Just you know, straight up. It's strange, of course. Mm-hmm. But the, I have to say that because I live alone, I think I'm enjoying it more than most people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anyone to answer to, <laughs> and I don't have to listen to other people. <laughs> you don't miss us. Well. <laughs> Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> you had to ask. Yeah, no, no, I, I wanted to put it out there. I wanted the world to know where we get all this from. How did you think about parenting us? 
So I always felt like little people, and my sister and I, we used to call our kids little people, had a lot to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you start out with conversations. And if you recall, we talked all the time, yeah, dinner time, and you all talked. And I always say I learned so much from you guys because you had things on your mind that we were listening to. I mean, we would talk, and we would talk about how you might have been thinking wrong or you might have been thinking differently from us, but it was never so bad that you had to be told to just be quiet. But I always (laughs) said that uh, our discipline was really just conversation. We were free to ask questions, to debate, to disagree, but do it respectfully. Uh, we, we were, you know, we were a part of the discussion in our house. We weren't just ancillary people listening on the sideline. Where, right. did, where did you and dad get that? Especially when you were raised in a generation where that's just not how, you know, folks your age were raised. I remember it not feeling good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I felt like I wanted to say something yeah but I couldn't and I always felt like I people thought maybe I didn't have sense enough to to have an opinion Mm. and I think that's what it is if you you all recall I used to tell you to question me Mm -hmm. and I always said and you all sure did run that in the ground (laughs) because Well, you well, you invited it, <laughs> and then I I got a little nervous about the questioning because I thought I should know all the answers, and then I decided, you know, I don't have to know all the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when I started my count to ten. When you asked me a question that was uncomfortable, mm-hmm. I decided I didn't have to answer right away. Yeah. So when you count to 10, you give yourself a chance to calm down mm-hmm. with this question. And you think, and then before you know it, you're not even answering it. You're having a conversation with this yeah. person. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, why do you think you should do that? Or did you think about doing so-and-so? But it's funny how parents think they have to know all the answers. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows all the answers. Yeah. And you were- I was very comfortable saying, I don't know. Yeah. With all that you gave me um, and all that I knew about love and talking to kids, there was just still the physical act that nobody can prepare you for, for bringing a life that you love into the world, something so precious. And you just have this baby looking at you. Whoo. Yeah. Well, I I would say that I was so nervous. I'm trying to read every book I could find, what to expect when you're expecting, go to Lamaze and all of this. I was like (laughs) Rob Petrie from the Dick Van Dyke show. I was going to bed every night with all my clothes on thinking this is going to be the night. And finally, Avery came and everything was fine. And, And you remember, we used to live like two miles Mm -hmm. from the hospital. Mm -hmm. It took me 40 minutes to get home because I was doing about four miles an hour the whole Mm -hmm. way. 
my what to expect when you're expecting, which was the our modern day Bible. Now they they have it on iPads and iPhones and they have apps and all this stuff. But my book was so dog eared because it was like every day I read, okay, zero to three months. I would I would study it when uh, Malia was asleep. I go to the book and be like, okay, am I getting this right? Is the bottle working? I get what you're saying. It's like that feeling of being overprepared. But then there are things that they don't tell you, at least for a mother, is like they make it look all easy, like breastfeeding is just going to be this natural thing, you know. And mom, you didn't breastfeed. No, I did not. (laughs) You also, and mom is also kind of a, she doesn't remember a lot of stuff. So while she talked, you know, I remember when we was like, well, what should I expect in the delivery? And so she's like, Ma, she was like, don't worry about it. They just knock you out because you came up in the time when they just gas you out. Right, Ma? We were born. Right. Like, like, you were, give me drugs. That's, that's And by the way, by the way, it's a good thing we didn't breastfeed because we'd have been sucking on highballs and nicotine. Oh, it was a whole different thing. As I, I tell Mom, Craig, it's like if she had just like focus we could have been somebody you know i mean we were born in the time when people didn't stop smoking people didn't stop drinking they didn't drive around with seat belts it's like you enter this world and you enter the world of an adult you're on and your own i could have been seven feet tall if she could wasn't have been. smoking so much so here we come you know with all the rules and all the guidebooks and you still feel unprepared yeah you know? Yeah. Bringing home a new baby, the one thing that I remember is that first day home, I felt alone Hmm. because I had this big responsibility. But I soon got over it when it was time to make the formula. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, okay, you got stuff to do, lady. Mm -hmm. So what did that long, what did it, because I felt, I felt sad too. It was a huge responsibility. The responsibility was mm-hmm. overwhelming. Yeah. When you thought, I have this little, you're looking at this little baby that mm-hmm. can't do anything for themselves. But I soon got over it because I was busy. Mm-hmm. You know, I had diapers to wash. I had meals to fix. I, you know, I wonder, Mom, you know, when you looked at sometimes how we parent and what we worried about, did you think we were overdoing it? Did you yes, think we? <laughs> I certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, calm down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but you had to do it your way, so I didn't push it. You know, everybody mm-hmm. has to do things the way they think it should be done. I always appreciated that because you were a hands-on grandma, I mean, from day one. Because, first of all, you love little babies. You right. love your grandma. All right, I always joke that uh, mom loves Craig more than me. She loves all of our children way more than either one of us. That is facts. I mean, all our kids had a ritual. Of what, it was at least one weekend out of um, the month where the girls would be like, I want to go to grandma's and that you'd have a sleepover. And that was the big, biggest night of the week because you'd get them food that they shouldn't be eating and couldn't get with me. You know, they slept in your bed. They kicked you out of your bed. I can't believe it. <laughs> You let them tear up your house and make forts out of the couch. I mean, you let them sleep with the TV on. Go to bed with the TV on. What? I remember mom saying, well, this is these kids are easy as long as you can give them back. (laughs) 
And that was the thing I got mad with you about because I felt like you were too strict. <laughs> yeah, well, there, you know, okay. So we, I swear to God, I didn't do one thing that you didn't do. I, where'd you, that's why I was like, where'd you think I got all this stuff from? Well, we, we talk a lot about you, but our, our hero in our lives, Craig, is Frazier Robinson, who, you know, is not with us, but is with us every mm-hmm. single day. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we had mom as a great guiding, consistent force in our lives because she was able to stay home because dad worked a shift job. And, you know, so she was with us and could invest that time. But I know I got so much from my dad. I got, as a young girl, I got a feeling of empowerment because my dad respected my voice. He treated me as your equal, as his equal. Mm -hmm. You know, if he taught you to do something, I learned how to do it. There was no, girls can only do this, boys can only do that. I mean, the expectations he had of me and his love for me he was my first role model of what it meant to have a, a, a supportive, loving man in my life. He always felt like there was something good in absolutely everybody. You know how he took up with his drunk uncle or his <laughs> unemployed. I mean, he just mm-hmm. thought everybody had something going for him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I think that that's an important lesson for people to learn. You have to look at people. They look like they're bad people. They're not. That was mm-hmm. Frazier's thing. Yeah. Everybody has issues. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I liked about him. He understood that everybody was basically decent, but they had lots of things happening, like your story. Their story mm-hmm. will help you understand why a person is where he is at this point in their life. And Frazier always understood that. But, you know, did you agree on everything? We both felt the same about you guys. And I always said that Frazier and I pretty much thought alike. We thought the same things were important. And did you know that when you guys first met or you kind of grew into that? You grow into it because you don't, I I always tell the story about when we first got married and moved in together, our our first argument was which way to hang the toilet paper. (laughs) Some hang it over backwards and some, and we came from two separate households and I decided then that I refused to get in an argument over toilet paper. And ever since then, I've been hanging it his way. (laughs) For those of you who are out there, it is the where it it comes under, not over the top. It Mm -hmm. comes underneath. And that is how all of our households are now. Well, no, I'm an over person. What happened? I don't know. How did you become an over person? I I don't know. I was thinking that as you were saying that. It's like, yeah, I, I know that it's under, but ours is over. So you decided not to argue about it, too, huh? I just felt like that was just too trivial to mm-hmm. get into a discussion about, especially when it's important to the other person yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't cost you anything. It's easy to acquiesce. With each generation, they're making parenting harder. They're making the bar crazier, like for what a parent is supposed to do. 
Everybody's online talking, talking, talking. <coughs> what's good and what's bad. And the, they forget there's a hundred different opinions out there. Mm-hmm. And raising children, you can play that by ear. Nobody mm-hmm. has a, a workbook. I mean, you talk about your dog-eared copies. Mm-hmm. But the best thing to do is play it by ear. Mm-hmm. And that's when you find out when you have more than one child, they each need something different from a parent. Playing it by ear in the way you say it actually requires a bit more focus, right. but not on like books and right. theories, but on your particular right. child. Right. And so in order to do that, you've got to know your baby. Right. You know, you've got to you've got you've got to treat it like it has a distinct personality. Right. You know, because it babies do. I saw Malia and Sasha who they were, you know, their their core personality showed up really early. Right. You know, like right. they were infants when you could see. If you were paying attention and spending time and really listening like your baby has something to tell you, which they do, then you can actually. So what you mean by playing by ear is like you got to know your You got to know, yeah. Playing Mm -hmm. by ear is dealing with things as they are. How were Craig and I different? What did you see in us when we were little? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, first. Craig always looked like he was worrying about something. I'm sure some of that had to do with dad's health. But ever since he was little, his pictures, you look in his eyes and you could see like a worried little child. (laughs) But then when you came along, I decided I made him too nice. And I decided that well, you remember you used to have temper tantrums? No, no, we don't need to talk about that. <laughs> she came that way. And you came that way. And yeah. it was like, oh, she busted her head. And yeah, just I did. from being mad. And I, I took you to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And they started questioning me like I had done something to you. Mm-hmm. Almost got you then reported the next to DCFS. Time, and the next time you did that, I said, okay. Let them come take you and let you live in somebody else's house. You keep that up. <laughs> and when I said that, you stopped throwing yourself around when you were mad. <laughs> but you seemed like you just wanted to do more. Not that Craig didn't. Mm-hmm. You just were determined you were going to do it your way and... That's just the way. If Craig was acquiescent, he would say, oh, yeah, that sounds like what Dad said sounds like a good idea. You would say, well, why'd you do that? What'd you mm-hmm. do that for? You know, yeah. and it just sound, I always tell people that I stopped raising you when you were about nine years old. And you know what I remember? <laughs> I remember you saying when, I, when Mish would be talking about doing some things, and I'm like, how are you going to let her do that? And and uh, I remember you saying, you probably don't even remember this. You're like, well, when it comes to Mish, I have to give her two choices, both of which I'm okay with. Because she's liable not to take my advice. And I was like, whoa. That's some fam- jiu-jitsu parenting. Woo. <laughs> <laughs>
you have a group of close friends that you guys always Mm -hmm. sort of relied on each other that I thought was admirable, but but important. Especially as Barack was running for office and he was away more because sometimes you don't want to be away from your kids, but it's nice to be with your kids with other adults because all you're doing when kids are little is like you're you're hoping that you're not messing them up. You're learning from what everybody else is doing. So a whole Saturday with my girlfriends and our kids are spent. Well, what time is your your baby going to sleep or what are you feeding them? And is what what does this mean? You you can just ask a series of questions. And what you learn, mom, is what you talked about is that, you know what, everybody's doing this parenting thing a little bit differently. Some people are very on top of making sure they only eat whole grain foods and healthy. Some people are like, look, I I gave my baby a chicken leg and she was fine. You know, I mean, it's just a little bit of every some some of us worked. Some of us didn't. You know, some of us had partners. Some of us didn't. But all of these kids that we raised our families with, these kids all turned out great. You expected us to be responsible for ourselves at a very early age, Um, setting our alarm clocks very early. I mean, making our beds, all that stuff. Chore, any kind of chore, doing our own laundry. You stopped waking us up. Early. Very was, early. I, I um, think I bought those alarm clocks when you started school mm-hmm. in kindergarten. <laughs> if you remember, I said, mm-hmm. you can lay in the bed if you want. I already have my education. Well, that that message, Craig, rings through my head every day. Every day. It's like, I better get up. I mean, at th- that was also the beauty of you and dad is that you made our successes and our failures our own. You know, you were always there for us, but you believe that you get good grades for you, not for me. You know, you, you know, so you guys never celebrated our, our victories too much or you never wallowed in our failures too deeply. And I always felt like I'm getting up for me. I've got to get ready to sc- go to school because my, it's not because my mom is making me do it, but she's told me that I'm responsible for my education. I'm responsible for my homework. But mom, it takes a lot to let go. I think first you got to realize that a two-day-old baby is a smart person. Mm-hmm. You know, Frazier taught me that. He decided you all were smart when I first got pregnant. He didn't. It wasn't a question of whether or not, or maybe he just decided he was having the smartest kids on earth. <laughs> and uh, that's the way I thought of you. I thought of you as people who could learn things. And I still say that about every single child. I think everyone is smart if their parents think they're smart and treat them as if they're smart and treat them with respect. If you are looking for a child to be self-reliant when they're 21, 22, you have to make them practice that as early as five and six and seven years old. So it's like, if you don't teach a kid how to wake up on their own when they're young and it's easy, yeah, you could be waking them up for the rest of their lives because you don't make them practice it. One of the things that I had to learn how to negotiate was 
creating these boundaries with my kids in the White House. You know, I mean, you talk about a, a, a being raised in a totally different world than I ever knew. <laughs> it's like plucking these little girls out of our normal life on the south side of Chicago with Craig and mom and our way of doing things in our community and then putting them in a historic mansion with butlers and maids and florists and and gardeners and secret service and then trying to make sure that they understood boundaries <laughs> understood responsibility trying to live by the values, raise my kids by the values that I was raised with was, um, I won't say it was challenging because I believed in it, but mom, you saw this, you you had to basically up in the system of the White House (laughs) to get them to make sure these girls have some semblance of normalcy, right? (laughs) Yeah, and I didn't push it nearly as hard as I should have because of being a grandma. But well, I, I mean, I tried. It, well, <laughs> but that's the other thing. It's like that wasn't your job, you know. I mean, so while we tease you about being lenient, I mean, the point is, is that having being able to be that grandma for them in that environment where somebody was always their advocate and sneaking them a little extra candy and letting them stay up, you did that as you always said because you knew that I was being the disciplinarian. I think the girls did really well with what they had to deal with. You know, they ended up being, they, with all the Secret Service and all, they pretty much just went about their schoolwork as just a normal child, you know, even though the Secret Service was standing outside their door. Yeah, I think. And they just walked by them and go on and. I really think it's a real testament to all three of you. You, Mom. Mish, Barack, that they ended up being so well adjusted behind all of that because mm-hmm. I, it's, you know, we we got a taste of it from afar, right? But I can't even imagine being there all the time because it was stressful for us to come visit. So I I just don't know what it would be like to raise children in that sort of, of officialness and pomp and circumstance. And so I I think you guys have done a wonderful job because both Malia and Sasha have turned out to be wonderful young ladies and uh, very well adjusted given what they they had to deal with right at a very important developmental Mm -hmm. point in their lives. I always tried to make sure that I wasn't pouting in front of the kids when Barack wasn't there because they didn't, they loved him, but he was like, well, he travels. He's not here right now. This is what he does. If I had made a big deal out of it and said, oh my God, your dad's not here again. Um, Oh, he's missing this. Or, oh, I just wish. And I would, then that's the signal to them. Well, this isn't normal then. I should be upset about this. Dad's late again, you know? Um, But I found that, especially in the White House, when there was a demand, it's like we we worked, even as Barack being the president of the United States, he worked his schedule around their schedule. They weren't waiting until nine o'clock at night to eat because dad was running late. They didn't they didn't they never couldn't not go somewhere or do something because of dad. You know, I never wanted them to resent 
the presidency or resent what their dad did. And I always thought, well, they would if their lives were put on hold for things that he had to do. So they adapted to him being gone, him traveling around the country. They adapted to me being campaigning. They were like, yeah, this is what we do. More on the Michelle Obama podcast after the break. We're at the end of our parenting uh, uh, careers. Well, no, I am because Wait you're an old dad. <laughs> I'm oh, an yeah. old dad. We, we, Craig is the, the president and CEO, chairman of the Old Dads Club. That's right. Um, Charter member. Charter, Charter member. Um, but you at least have experienced that point of parenting that I'm at where kids are, well, we were supposed to be empty nesters. <laughs> Um, but how, how does it feel, Craig, seeing Avery and Leslie, your older adults, you know, to see them at the end of that cycle with all the hard work that we talked about, all the love, all the, the teaching and the caring to see them then enter into the world because Avery is a grown man. Well, now, now that I can sort of look back on what it's like to raise adults, kids who have become adults, I realize what mom used to always say to us about, I'm just going to give you all I can up. And, and then at a certain point, you guys are on your own. And to, to, to have two that are on their own and able to take care of themselves, they both are, are capable and, and are, are good people in good relationships there's a sense that, you know, Kelly and I talk about this all the time. There's a sense of satisfaction that we've got those two going. And it really makes us feel good about the little two. For us, there was that just that emotion when it's like the actual goodbye. I mean, the process of getting them ready and dropping them off. College was the na next natural step. They they had outgrown everything else about their lives and they were ready to go. And you know that, and that felt good. But there is that la that actual, when you leave them, drop them somewhere and you leave. <laughs> and you right? pull off. <laughs> and you pull off. You know, with Malia, uh, you know, we, we held it together, you know, sort of. We had, Brock and had two different ways of dealing with that anxiety. I just had a list of things to do. I was unpacking the room, we're making the bed, we're cleaning, we're getting the dorm room ready. We had things. We were, you know, I was occupied and Barack was, he was all out of it because he really didn't have a job, you know, so we had to, we had to give him a, like a make job, like, hey, why don't you try to put this lamp together? Like the lamp was already put together, you know, it really just needed to be screwed and, you the know. The shade and he screwed thought, on top. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was thinking, yes, yes, I have this assignment. And then he realized this is just make work because he, he completed his assignment in like five minutes. And then he was like, you know, okay, now what? But we took Malia to, to lunch and then we were leaving because, you know, with all that we brought to college campus, having us 
stay longer was not going to be helpful. So we were pretty much in and out. In fact, they let her move in a day early to so that, you know, our commotion wouldn't be in the midst of everyone else moving in. But that moment when she left the restaurant and we got in our car to go to the airport, we tried to hold it in. And then I heard Barack over in the side just, <laughs> you know, that sort of, yeah, yeah. you know. And and Alan, his agent, passed a handkerchief back to him. He's like, "Thanks, man." Um, and we both just, you know, that we we both shed some tears. Not just him, but me, because there was just something about the actual leaving her. Even though she had been to sleepaway camp and she had traveled, and she had, there's just something about that baby is now like she's gone. Little did we know they'd be back so soon, but. <laughs> Uh, given the pandemic. Um, and then we were better with Sasha. But still, right at that, that same moment when we are departing and all of us are leaving and she is staying, there is that little choke up that, wow, this is, this is a real milestone in their lives. Being a parent has taught me so much about myself. I, I, I think that so much of who I am is, is not just about the parenting you gave me, but the experience of trying to pass on these things to my daughters, who are these two very individual people, and learning about me through them. That has been one of the most important, over any kind of job, any kind of education, any kind of degree that I have ever had, being a parent has been the biggest growth point for me. Being a parent is such a pleasant surprise. It's been such a pleasant surprise because there is something that dad wasn't alive to see any of our kids. Right. But there is something about each and every one of them that reminds me of dad somehow. <laughs> and that's just the culture that we've sort of built that he started. Well, and I think I want, you know, particularly because I know we have a diverse audience and as we're in the midst of these protests, Black Lives Matter, you know, this is the frustrating thing for 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 black people, because what we know is our truth, which is we are the norm. <laughs> we our family is what black families are, um, what black I, neighborhoods I want, are. I don't want to interrupt you, but no, no. if you remember generations before, we bought into the propaganda they were teaching us about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know what they said about us? A, a, a lot of people believed it. Mm -hmm. Even us. And mm -hmm. reacted in, in that way. So we are getting yeah. to the point now where we know who we are. We know what mm -hmm. we're capable of. And all of that st stuff that you were pitching just isn't true. But what do you make of what's going on? You know, where we are as a country, you know, how these young people are out in the streets protesting, you know, the whole issue of police brutality, because we've we've talked about these kind of issues growing up. The time that, Craig, you were about 10, had your new 10-speed bike that mom and dad had bought you. I, re I I still see it vividly. It's yellow. It was your first 10-speed. It was... From Goldblatt's. From Goldblatt's. Right. But you were riding down the street, and you got stopped by the police, 
and they accused you of stealing your own bike. Right. And they would not believe you to the point where you were like, take me to my home because, yeah. you know. No, I, it, it was it was terrifying <laughs> only because the police, I always, always taught that the police are your friends and it, right. they, and they'll believe the truth. And I was telling them the truth and this guy would not believe right. me. Mm -hmm. So this guy grabbed my bike and he wouldn't let it go. And I was like, oh no, no. And, and I was so innocent. I was like, oh, you got this all wrong. This is my bike. Don't worry, this mm -hmm. isn't a stolen bike. And he would not believe me. And I was absolutely heartbroken. And I finally said to him, listen, you can take me to my house and I will prove to you this is my bike. And how and old were you? I was like 10. I was like mm -hmm. 10 or 11. So they put the bike in the trunk of the police car, right. put me in the back, drove me home. I got out. Mom was waiting at the front of the gate. And I started explaining. And, she, and mom was, you know how mom is. Mom was like, go in the house. <laughs> you know how I mean, she's ready to talk to somebody. She's like, all right, go in the house. And I went in the house and all I could think of was this dude's about to get it. <laughs> and I saw her talking and I couldn't hear anything, but I saw her hand pointing and she had that tight lipped. What and did you then, tell the police officer, mom? What were you telling him? I found out that they knew the people who were accusing Craig of taking the bike. They were friends with him. And what they came and did because they actually came, they ended up coming inside the house to sit down. And I said, uh, what you did was cancel out a whole lot of things that we had been teaching them. And I think you need to come back here and talk to them. And at least admit you made a serious mistake so that you won't cancel out everything we've been trying to teach our children. Yeah. When, when black folks, you know, what, what a lot of folks who are not in our position don't understand is that this is such a way of life when it comes to interacting with the rest of the world. It, it, it doesn't matter who you are and what kind of values you have. You know, nobody thinks about the fact that we, we all come from good families that are trying to teach values. But when you leave that safety of your home and go out into the street where being black is is a crime in and of itself we have all had to learn how to operate outside of our homes with a level of caution and fear because you never know and we grow up having to have conversations with our children because almost everybody I know has had some kind of incident where they were doing just minding their own business but live in black and and got accused um, of something. And Craig, what does that do to you as a kid at 10? Yeah, well, I, I tell you, I was absolutely heartbroken because I could tell they were trying to ask me questions that would trip me up. If I wasn't so sure that that bike was mine and showed any kind of reticence, I could see them taking me off to the police station, mm -hmm. not calling mom until after I've been you know, booked or whatever they do. And it just made me acutely aware at a young age what dad had always, what mom and dad had always talked about. You have to be very careful when you're out here, not just dealing with the bad element, mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. that you have to deal with when you're living in a black neighborhood mm-hmm. of, you know, crime, gangs, that kind of thing. But you have to worry about the police, too. So you have to walk this line where you can't make a mistake on either side or you could get sucked up. And, you mm. know, when I when I called him and he came back over, you know, he's you know what he said? He said, you know. I knew that was his bike the minute he said, take me to my house. (laughs) And then I said, well, why did you let it go that far? You are actually messing with a 10-year-old's mind as far as the police are concerned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't know that part. I didn't know that he admitted to knowing that it was my Mm -hmm. bike. But that's the perfect example of what all of these young black people are dealing with now because Mm -hmm. this was almost 50 years ago Mm -hmm. yeah just think about that i i can't imagine what these young folks are dealing with now Mm -hmm. when they go out somewhere Mm -hmm. and just the fact that the way they were acting lets you know that it's part of a culture Mm -hmm. because those two policemen were black and they were acting exactly the same as any other policeman. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like this is what they thought they were how they were thought they were supposed to act. Mm-hmm. But Misha, yeah. I'm 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 hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yeah. It's sad, but I'm hopeful yeah. for a couple of reasons. One, this young group—they're so energized from mm-hmm. a movement standpoint. This social media has enabled them to be able to congregate and engage quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. The second thing, the, the what everybody's been talking about, the diversity of the group of people yeah. who are out there yeah. marching and out there protesting and doing it peacefully, it has struck a chord with everybody over the globe. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. and and I I've been saying all it took was for one of these white women to get shot with a rubber bullet. Mm-hmm. And people are like, whoa, what is going on? Well, don't forget the uh, the recording of the whole. Oh, incident. Yeah, and 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 that was uh, that well, you, was that was going right, to be the, the last. That my we, next part, we had to actually see and it happen. You had to see it because you're talking. I'm talking all my life to whoever I run into, white, black, whatever, and telling these stories about how mm-hmm. every black person knows a black person who's been put in jail because they were standing on the wrong corner at the wrong time of night and they end up in jail. You say that, but when pe- when you say that to people, they sort of look at you like, oh, that couldn't be that bad. Right, because it, could, it, would, it would never happen to them. Right. You're taught, you know, people are going to assume the worst of you. So you've got to be better than. You've got to be 10 times better than. And when we were in the White House, we didn't we we could have never gotten away with some of the stuff that's going on now, not be, because of the public, but our community wouldn't have accepted that. You you worked, you did your best every day. You showed up. And we did it in the White House, but there are people and jobs all over this community, all over this country, all over this world who are doing the same thing because that's how we were raised. We have to be better to just be equal. Um, so the fact that there are people out there that treat us less than when we're working so hard to be better than, that's where the pain comes from. 
That's where the, that's what what that's what these young people are so angry about because they are doing everything right, everything they are told, and it doesn't matter. A police officer will still stop them and accuse them of stealing a bike that their parents worked hard to get. That hurts. If you have a good foundation, you are so strong that you can overcome that, right? right. <laughs> you know, because you are so resilient because you have had to learn so much empathy and so much self-control. Right. So the notion that people are out here wondering about these protests, it's like, do you do you know how much it takes that it takes to get up every day and be accused of being less than what you are? But it's because we come from families like ours. We have mothers and aunts and grandmothers and fathers like ours, you know, we have communities that stick together and church groups and, you know, little league teams. We're, you know, piecing together a life with duct tape and glue and a lot of love and a lot of empathy. So when people doubt us, it's frustrating and it's painful and it can make you angry. But we want to make sure that, you know, at least you and me, Craig, we can take a moment to acknowledge the Marion Robinsons out there, um, <laughs> the, the, the millions of them that are raising amazing people and putting them out there on the planet. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Mommy. You're this welcome, is, this sweetie. This is going to be good. Well, that was a very fun conversation for me, and I hope it was for you, too. I want to thank my mommy, Marion Robinson, and my big brother, Craig, for coming on today and sharing their stories and their wisdom and their amazing senses of humor. And I also want to thank all of my guests who came on throughout this season. I couldn't be more thankful for the conversations we've had here on this podcast. While we've had to navigate the reality of this pandemic, doing some of the conversations over Zoom or sitting at least six feet apart from each other to maintain social distancing. Each episode really felt like a true reflection of the kinds of conversations I've always had with these special people in my life. We just got to talking and then we forgot that the mics were even there. We were sharing stories and laughing at each other's jokes and most importantly, connecting with one another in a way that fulfills and sustains us no matter what we've got going on. So I hope that these conversations have been meaningful for you too. Conversations like these help us understand ourselves better. And when enough people are having enough of these kind of conversations, we will gain a better understanding of each other in our families, our social circles, and our communities. That's how we begin to break down these barriers that too often get in our way, by opening up, by listening to one another. So I want to thank all of you for, for being here, for listening. Thank you for being a part of these conversations. Thank you for the conversations you're having in your own lives with your own girlfriends, with your mentors, with your own parents and partners. These conversations couldn't be more important. Thanks again, everybody. I will talk to you again soon. The Michelle Obama Podcast is a Spotify original. 
presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, and Mukta Mohan are executive producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. Adam Sachs is our consulting producer. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef is the executive producer. Arwen Nix and Jonathan Shiflett are the producers. Additional production support from Mary Knopf. Jonathan Shiflett is also our engineer. Manika Wilhelm is the archival producer and transcriber. Rachel Garcia is the Dustlight editorial assistant. Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Special thanks to Mackenzie Smith, Joe Paulson, Christina Shockey, Melissa Winter, China Clayton, Alex May, Caroline Adler Morales, and Maron Heli Mascal. And thanks to Clean Cut Studio, Search Party Music, Tyler Lechtenberg, Dylan Rupert, Carolyn Lipka, Young Creative Agency, and Diara Nazarian. Our theme music is by Stevie Wonder. Original music by Andy Clausen and Telly Fresco. The song you heard at the beginning of this show is Fragile by Aaron Allen Kane. Thanks for listening to the Michelle Obama podcast.